Over the last three days, we've gone back to some basic attentional training, refining attention skills. And I really, in my many interactions with scientists, people in various disciplines, I've not really encountered much of any significant resistance to the idea of developing, honing attention skills, especially if they can be used in a remedial fashion for ADHD, for example. Uh, not, I haven't met too many people that think, oh, that's a terrible idea, we just want drugs only. Ritalin is the total answer. I've not really heard anybody say that. And so, not much resistance out there to developing attentional skills. Hardly any understanding of how to do it, and hardly any vision of how the extent to which attentional skills could be developed, because that's simply not a strength of Western civilization as a whole. Until very recently, it was quite widely assumed that attention skills could not be developed at all. That was like six years ago. And so this is not our strength. But now today, we'll venture back into the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, which is doing two things simultaneously. It's still a shamatha practice, so therefore we're still developing attention skills, of course, the stability, the vividness, necha dan secha. But we're also developing this ability to directly observe mental events, thoughts, images, to directly observe emotions and desires that creep in very subjectively. So we can call this ability metacognition. The, the Buddhist term for it in translation is mental perception or yikimunsum, yikimunsum which is widely acknowledged, I mean, everywhere. And it's, it's, it's not a matter, it's not like karma. Well, do you believe in karma or not? The, the presence of mental perception, from a Buddhist perspective, if you, if you don't believe in that, if you don't acknowledge it, you're mentally impaired. I mean, really, there's something wrong with you. You are mentally impaired. It would be like a person who's colorblind simply saying, there are no such things as colors. Well, then you're visually impaired. This is not a matter of debate. There's simply... You're impaired. And of course, this has been my training since I was 20, 21 in Buddhist psychology, which to my mind made such, such good sense. So it came as quite an eye-opener for me. I was really quite mm, amazed when I ventured into graduate studies at Stanford and got a couple of years into it and proposed to one of the senior professors in my department, Religious Studies, that I'd like to do a book a critiquing scientific materialism and how it's blocked our understanding of the actual nature of consciousness and I'd like to show how attention skills could be refined and metacognitively developed such that first-person methodologies could be very useful for investigating the mind. And my professor, very, very intelligent man, very knowledgeable, interested in both East and Western literature, looked at me and said, but you have no privileged access to your own mind. I was 30, no, no, 41 or so at the time. I spent more than three years in retreat, thousands of hours observing my mind. And here's a man, intelligent. I mean, this was not a visit to a mental asylum. This was Stanford University. And he told me that I had no privileged access to my mind. In other words, I have no better ability to monitor my thoughts, my moods, my emotions, mental images, dreams, than anybody else. And it really struck me, you are mentally impaired. I mean, that's not sarcasm. It's not being derogatory. It is like saying you're tall. 
you're mentally impaired. If you actually believe that, you are literally mentally impaired. Your metacognitive abilities must have been, become so atrophied, so stunted, that you're not even aware that you have your, no, your own mind. And so I was not allowed to write such a dissertation. And so I wrote it anyway. I wrote two dissertations at Stanford. And this one was published later by Oxford University Press under the title of The Taboo of Subjectivity. So Oxford University Press thought it was good enough, but it was not good enough for a PhD dissertation. That really stunned me, though, that any, any person who is clearly so intelligent and articulate and so forth and highly educated could make such an utterly absurd statement. And I thought, where did this come from? And of course, it's obvious, behaviorism. Behaviorism tells you some of the more radical behaviorists, thoughts don't exist. Consciousness does not exist. You have no immediate access to your own mind. And those are direct quotes from some of the prominent writers in behaviorism. In other words, there's a whole discipline here led by people who are metacognitively impaired. Dominated by people literally mentally impaired. That really struck me. So I went over to the philosophy department. I didn't change majors. I stayed in religious studies. But I chose it because they had so few required courses so I could really do what I wanted. I went over to the philosophy department and took an intro course on philosophy of mind. It should go without saying that the professor was a card-carrying member of the church scientific or an advocate of the metaphysical dogma of scientific materialism. So everything was taught from that perspective. Everything is physical. There doesn't exist anything that is not physical or an emergent property of the physical. So I had a nice conversation with him on one occasion. I said, but professor, when I visualize something, let's say a piece of fruit or anything, uh, when a mental image comes to mind, what's the nature of that mental image? Because you look at it, it clearly has no physical properties. And what's the nature of that mental image that I bring to mind? And for example, dreams are mental images that come to mind. And I said, what's the nature of that mental image? And he turned to me and he said, it doesn't exist. After I stopped trembling in, how could you say that? <laughs> I asked him, how can you say that? And he said, oh, it doesn't exist because it doesn't have physical properties. <laughs> this man is mentally impaired. That is, he's adopted a dogma now that stupefies, that literally stupefies. You cannot even acknowledge the existence of what is immediately present that influences your life because it does not accord with your dogma. I was amazed. So I went over to the psychology department. <laughs> the science of the mind. It was an intro course to cognitive psychology. The introduction mentioned that there had once been a tradition called introspectionism where people try to use introspection to learn about the mind, but that didn't work, and therefore we don't do that anymore. And the rest of the book was all about studying the mind only by way of behavior, interviews, brain studies, and so forth. And nowhere in the whole book was there, was there an acknowledgement that in fact we can in fact observe mental phenomena. There was no word for mental perception or anything like it. There was no reference to metacognition. There was no reference to actually observing the mind might be a useful way to understand it. Never even came up. 
What was, did come up, were many, many statements that were right there together with the very helpful scientific data, actual knowledge about the mind, gleaned by way of objective measures, but peppered, seasoned with these outrageous statements that were simply expressions of the metaphysics of materialism and stated a scientific fact, right together with them. Computers have emotions and so forth and so on. I thought, what? It was just so peppered with just utterly evidence-free assertions out of straight dogma that I was just amazed. How can they put so much just superstition in a book that's supposed to be a scientific book, textbook about the mind? I was really amazed. And they never even acknowledged that you can observe your mind and actually learn something about it by observing it. So this was really quite startling for me. If these people had already been, all been stupid, you know, retarded, then that would be understandable. People are retarded, then they say retarded things. But what's very concerning is when you have highly intelligent, educated people saying retarded things. That's really troublesome. Intelligent people saying intelligent things, gotcha. Retarded people being retarded, understandable. We, we sympathize. But when you put two together, that's really weird. So the, the, the march goes on. About a year ago, we had a Mind and Life conference that I actually took a principal role in organizing. And to just refresh your mind, one world-class cognitive psychologist at this meeting said that when people report on the first-person experience, we do not take their sta statements to be statements of fact. We don't even ask whether they're statements of fact. We simply say, they said it. And that's a statement of fact. So there's no acknowledgement there that you might actually have some veridical insight into your mind when you report on your base of your own first-person experience. She went on to say that all of our first-person experience consists of hallucinations. What this, but of course, all of scientific experiment, experience consists of first-person experience. There's no third person out there. It's just a whole bunch of first-persons. Every scientist is the first person, and then they can sometimes corroborate what they're seeing, and then we call that the third person. But the third person doesn't exist anywhere. It's just a whole bunch of first persons. And so what was she, was she really implying that all scientific exper experience consists of hallucinations? Now, I guess they're in a special category. So I think of the medieval scholastics who basically, as a point of principle, said, Galileo, anything you observe through your telescope or anywhere else that does not correspond with our dogma of medieval scholasticism mm, doesn't count. It's, an, it's a hallucination. It's a, an aberration. It's an illusion. But he was an empiricist, so he threw out their dogma and started science instead. A world-class cognitive, cognitive neuroscientist at that same meeting a year ago Define metacognition as thinking about thinking. Didn't even acknowledge it might actually be able to observe mental states. Just defined it out. I was really flabbergasted. And then I gave a presentation. Since I organized this conversation, I got to speak. And so I, I gave a presentation on shamatha and the value, the value of ref refining attention skills, refining metacognitive skills, so that we can make more and more accurate observations of the state of, of states of consciousness, mental processes, and really investigate the mind with finely honed attention and finely honed metacognitive skills through the cultivation of shamatha and then eventually vipassana. The response, frankly, was a deadening silence. 
It just gave rise to no conversation at all. It just, it was like I dropped an anchor into the ocean and it just disappeared without a wave. There was just no response. The Dalai Lama in many of these meetings with scientists has commented on experiences, experiential insights drawn from Buddhist meditation that do not correspond with, do not, are not compatible with the beliefs of metaphysical materialism, or scientific materialism. And every time that happens, I mean really, virtually without exception, whenever he cites any experience from the Buddhist side come through, that's Im- coming out of years and years of extremely sophisticated training, but contradicts any of the principles of scientific materialism, the response is quite uniform. And that's it. Dead silence. Wait until he stopped talking about that. And now let's get back to, and we'll tell you how the brain works. One of the leading researchers in the world, he and I had a conversation years ago, and I was commenting what a, what a, what a how do you say, how unfortunate it is that over the last hundred years of the development of, of psychology and neuroscience, that such wonderful methods have been discovered and developed for studying the mind indirectly by way of behavior, really wonderful science, and studying the mind indirectly by way of studying the brain correlates, wonderful science, cognitive neuroscience. But what a shame it was that together with the behavioral studies and the neuroscientific studies, there was not an equally sophisticated development of introspective observation, actually observing the mind itself and not simply its behavioral expressions and its neural correlates. And the scientists responded, oh no, I think it was a good thing. It was a good thing that we didn't bring introspection in. Because this has really shown light on what the brain does. The same person recently commented in print that the only way you can really understand how meditation works is by understanding its underlying brain mechanisms. In other words, all the meditators being brought into his lab, some of them have meditated for you know, thousands of hours, or they don't really know how meditation works. Dalai Lama, I guess, doesn't really understand how meditation works because Buddhism doesn't really have a sophisticated theory of the brain or any sophisticated means of studying the brain. So the only people who really know about meditation are the people who don't meditate. (laughs) This really has taken some loosening up on my part. You see, I'm not quite over it yet. <laughs> but I have come to the firmer and firmer conclusion that the adoption, the embrace of the dogma of scientific materialism stupefies, gives rise to an imagination deficit disorder, and leads to profound metacognitive impairment. <laughs> Those should be the side effects listed on the bottle of scientific materialism. It may give you a lot of money and a lot of prestige and power, but it may stupefy and make you oblivious of the fact that you actually have a mind. So, let's not be oblivious. Let's do the old-fashioned scientific approach. If you want to understand something, observe it carefully. What a novel idea. Let's observe the mind. And now, what is the challenge in Buddhism when this very fine cognitive psychologist said that all of our experiences consist of hallucinations. To an extent, Buddhism would go along with that, in the, in the sense that our appearance is illusory. For those of you, none of you have studied Buddhist philosophy, Madhyamaka, Chitta Matra, and so forth. Our appearance is illusory. 
Is that which is by nature impermanent, does it appear to be relatively stable and permanent? Does that which is by, not by nature, of the nature, very nature of happiness, appear to be happy? That which is by nature unsatisfying, appear to be very satisfying, a source of pleasure. Does that which is not in fact I or mine appear to be I or mine? Buddhism says, yeah, these are really illusory. Therefore, we have a pashana, cut through the illusion and see things as they are. Do phenomena that are not inherently existent, that is not exist from their own side, either objectively or subjectively, that are not in fact existing by their own intrinsic self-nature, do they appear as if they did have intrinsic self-nature? Yes, they do. Very much like in a dream. A non-lucid dream, phenomena seem to be really out there and they're not really out there. A non-lucid dream experience is profoundly one of hallucination. Waking experience is very hallucinatory in the sense that things appear in a fashion in which they do not exist, therefore we have vipassana. And the primary challenge of vipassana, and we know that settling the mind in its natural state is right on the cusp between shamatha and vipassana. The primary challenge, here's something in a nutshell and we'll get back to the meditation. The primary challenge of vipassana is to cut through two types of cognitive imbalance. So we know what attentional imbalances are, laxity and excitation, hyperactivity and deficit. There are two types of cognitive imbalance. This is straight Buddhism. The first one is apprehending that which doesn't exist as being existent. So for an example, seeing thoughts in the brain Seeing thoughts in the brain, well, there aren't any thoughts in the brain. If you saw a thought in a brain, then you're seeing something that wasn't there. Okay? So we may see things, apprehend things that are not there. It goes with psychosis of hearing things that aren't there, seeing things that are not there, apprehending, believing things that aren't there to be there. Vipassana is designed to eradicate, to cut through the seeing that which is not there as being there. And that type of ignorance, this is Dodakpa in Tibetan, this false superimposition is said to be at the very root of suffering. The core type of delusion that lies at the root of all other mental afflictions and all suffering. There's another type of cognitive imbalance and that's in Kurudepa in Tibetan and that is not seeing that which is there. Something presents itself to you and you do not perceive it. Even though it's displaying itself, you don't see it. So, for example, this, the assertion, you have no privileged access to your own mind. This means, I guess, you're not even perceiving your own thoughts. You're not perceiving mental images. You deny they exist. I guess you don't even believe you dream. Because who knows what you dream apart from you. So, this type of delusion of ref not seeing that which is perfectly evident, that type of delusion you have to learn. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally to believe that you don't experience your own thoughts, that you can't see mental images. That doesn't come, you have to learn that by being brainwashed. You have to learn how not to apprehend that which is being presented to you. That is a type of delusion. It's an acquired delusion. But seeing that which isn't there, that comes naturally. In extreme forces, we, forms, we call it psychosis. But in less extreme forms, we simply see that which is permanent as impermanent, that which is unsatisfying as being of the nature of pleasure, that which is not self as being self, that which is not inherently existent as being inherently existent. So, shall we finally get to it? Settling the mind in its natural state is designed to become lucid with respect to our own minds, see what is there and not see what is not there. Let's do it.
Now that I've quite possibly stirred up some agitation, let's see if we can settle the body in its natural state. Settling the body in a state of ease, stillness, and vigilance. Letting your body be mindful, filled with awareness. Settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. Allow it to flow unimpededly and effortlessly. and settle your mind in its natural state with a quality of ease, stillness, and clarity as you for a little while let your awareness illuminate the sensations arising within the field of the body. As you well know by now, this is not a matter of thinking about the body, nor is it a matter of visualizing or imagining the body. It is slipping into direct perception, a bare attention, 
of the sensations arising within this field to which you and only you have access to your own body, privileged access to your own subjective experience, undetectable by any other means. Just for a short time, attend to those sensations, especially correlated with the in and out breath, to calm this dysfunctional mind that obsessively flows with one thought after another, to which we compulsively fuse our very sense of identity. And now, following the guidance that the Buddha gave to this wandering seeker, this accomplished contemplative by the name of Bahia, to cut through his cognitive imbalances, the teachings of which immediately led to his own liberation, becoming an arhat. Let's open the eyes and bring the full force of our attention to the visual field, not simply resting our awareness in space, but really attending to this elliptical field, a visual impressions of shapes and colors. Attend to it closely. And in the words of the Buddha, in the scene, let there be just the scene. Observe nakedly, barely, what is actually presented to your visual perception, but shave off the conceptual superimpositions, the projections and imputations that we superimpose upon this visual field. In the scene, let there be just the scene. 
Then close your eyes and turn the full force of your attention now to the auditory field, the space in which sounds arise, the space of hearing. And in the herd, let there be just the herd. Release all the cognitive associations, the conceptual projections. Rest in your closest approximation of bare attention, applying mental perception to this auditory field. It couples with your auditory perception. Now return your awareness to the space of the body and to whatever tactile events arise within that field. We can experientially, or from a first-person perspective, speak of just four elements, rather than the full array of elements in modern chemistry, which is extremely useful in another way. Here we speak of just the elements of earth, those immediate sensations or events of solidity and firmness immediately arising within this field. The water element, the immediate experience of fluidity and moisture, of fire, the gradient from cold to hot, of air, that which is motile, moving and light, all sensations of motion within the body, manifestations of the air element. Observe with bare attention in the felt, let there be just the felt.
just as you and you alone have privileged access to what you actually see and how you see it, privileged access to what you hear and how you hear it and what you feel within the body and how you feel it. You and you alone know whether your body feels uncomfortable, whether there are pains, whether there's pleasure. There are no objective instruments that can determine or measure the pain in your body, the discomfort. They are invisible to all physical modes of observation. But you have privileged access to your visual field, the auditory, the tactile. And now let's turn to the mind. As you let your, your gaze become open, resting vacantly in the space in front of you, with the eyes at least partially open. Direct your experience to that domain, direct your awareness to that domain of experience that is immediately accessible by way of perception. Direct observation, but which you do not observe with any of your five physical senses. What else immediately appears to your awareness? Look now closely, and in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived. If nothing clearly comes to mind, on occasion you just get lapses where there's nothing clear as you attend to the space of the mind and its contents. You may crystallize a thought or a mental image, any kind you like. Focus your attention single-pointedly on this mental event. Allow it to fade back into the space of the mind and keep your attention fixed right where it was hovering in the immediacy of the present moment and discerning, noting the very next mental event that arises and observe its nature 
letting it be without seeking to modify or change it in any way. Observe the nature of whatever arises within the space of the mind and sustain your mindfulness without distraction and without grasping. And let's continue practicing a little while in silence.
Let's bring this session to a close. Whatever one's metaphysical beliefs, I hope it's utterly obvious at this point that to engage in any of the three modes of shamatha that we're exploring in this retreat, you don't need to have any metaphysical assumptions. You don't have to believe that the mind is the brain. You don't have to believe that the mind is not the brain. You don't have to believe either one. You do need to have something uh, something of an open mind and maybe some sense, maybe this could be useful. And that's enough. In fact, one point here, very briefly, there are three qualities in one classic treatise that really represents the Buddhist tradition as a whole. What are the necessary qualities to be a, a worthy student of Buddhism? If you're a teacher and someone comes to you and says, I'd like to be your student, I'd like to study Buddha Dharma and follow this path, what three qualities should the teacher look for to see whether this person is worth spending any time on? Because not everybody is, frankly. Everybody is worthy of compassion and loving kindness. Not everybody is worth, worthy of being taught. You can waste your time. And so there are three qualities. Jipkya, jipkya banere. From the, 400, the, 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 the text, 400 verses by Aryadeva. Three qualities. Remember what they are? The first one, oh, so easy. Chorimapa, being without prejudice. <laughs> Relinquishing prejudices. Being unbiased. Being ob- truly objective in the sense of not just clinging to one's views, one's own assumptions, one's own beliefs, but being really open to critically reassessing one's own assumptions, beliefs, and so forth, as one critically assesses anything that is freshly presented. Chorimapa, being without bias, really being open to critically assessing one's own as well as others' assertions, evenly. The second one is Lodandamba in Tibetan. The first one, Chorimapa. Second one, Lodandamba. The second one is you must be perceptive, intelligent and perceptive. Those two go really go together, intelligent and perceptive. If you're not, then you won't be able to do much. It doesn't mean you have to have a very high IQ, but to be intelligent, to be discerning, to be observant, to be perceptive. That's a necessary requirement. And the third one's dunyer, dunyechen, having a true aspiration, a yearning, an aspiration to really learn the teachings and put them into practice. So those are three, only three. Not, there wasn't, oh, you have to believe in reincarnation. You have to believe the mind is not the brain. You have to believe that Buddha was omniscient. Not there. Those are not prerequisites. But those three qualities are. To my mind, those would be three splendid prerequisites for anyone wishing to become a scientist. And not having to adhere to the dogma of scientific materialism in order to get a scientific training in psychology, neuroscience, evolutionary biology, and so forth. It would be wonderful if we just stuck to those three, which I think are really wonderful criteria. Coming back to our practice of settling the mind in its natural state, some wonderful guidance on this, and then we'll take a break, is that I think you're all quite familiar now with the practice, and again, the key to really this unfolding, for this to truly unfold, to deepen, to illuminate, to make manifest processes in the processes in the mind that are normally unconscious why because we're not paying attention everything's unconscious if we don't pay attention 
The feelings of others are in the realm of the subconscious for ourselves if we're not paying attention. And so in order for this practice really to dredge the psyche and to reveal layer, layer, layer upon mental activity and dimensions of consciousness right down to the substrate consciousness, in order for this practice to be as effective as possible, the great counsel from generations of yogis before us is sustain the practice to the best of your ability in between sessions. Not only do it correctly while sitting on the cushion or in the supine position, but in between sessions, as much as possible, sustain an ongoing metacognitive flow of awareness of what types of thoughts, emotions, desires, memories, fantasies are arising in this ongoing flow in the mind. Be cognizant of them. Attend to them without distraction, without grasping. Sustaining that in-between sessions makes it a very smooth transition to come back into meditation and a smooth transition out. It's just rather like having a bulb that you, it's one of those fluctuating bulbs. It can go from 100 watts to 1,000 watts. So maybe the 100, bulb, 100 watt bulb illuminating the space of the mind when you're brushing your teeth and you're eating and you're walking and doing other tasks in between sessions. But still the light is on. Don't let it go out. And then when you sit in your cushion or you're in the supine position and now you're bringing all the wattage of your attention. Because attention really seems to be like a finite quantity. How many, how many watts do you have? And bring oh, all the wattage of the clarity, the cognizance of your awareness bring it single-pointedly like a laser and then let it brightly illuminate the space of your mind and whatever arises therein. Well, so. That should do it. <laughs> this is a preamble. See, the problem was, if you're wondering, what got him going this morning? Because I did get going this morning. A couple of rascals, one in particular is named Daniel. And he gave me a great big juicy question for this evening that it was actually for last night, but there was no time. So um, this evening, if you want a really peaceful evening, you might want to bring earplugs. <laughs> Put them in discreetly so you won't hurt my feelings. <laughs> Good, I'll see you at 4.30. <laughs>